out of the 12 deepest desires, which ones would you say most people are not aware that they have? I really like that question because there's often a kind of response to the different desires of what resonates. And I think we get embarrassed about wanting power. Do you really know what you want? How much have you examined your deepest desires and instincts? Well, today, we explore how digging into the mysteries of your unconscious mind and becoming clearer about what you really want, how this can catapult you closer to peace, success, and so much more. And my guest is both brilliant and delightful. Hello and welcome to The Brain and Branch Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, your behavioral psychology author. And today I am absolutely delighted to have Charlotte Fox Weber. She's a psychotherapist and she's founded an institute called The Examine Life. And she's written a wonderful new book called Tell Me What You Want. Charlotte, welcome. How are you? Hello. I'm really glad to be here chatting with you. Just quickly, where are you right now? Which city are you in the world? You're in London. Super. We've we've gone back and forth, and I'm going to be very transparent. And you've been extremely patient. And I wanted this interview for a number of reasons. And I think for those listening, you will hear why I really wanted this interview so bad. But let's dive in. I have a feature called Inside Your Mind. Do you mind if we go inside your mind with seven light questions where you can only answer one? Do you mind? Go for it. All right. Number one, listening or talking? Listening. Pencil or pen? Pen. London or Paris? Paris. Red wine, white or orange juice? Red wine. Yoga or Pilates? Yoga. Starter or dessert? Both? (laughs) Charlotte, you know the rules. (laughs) Starter, I guess. Okay, cool. Online therapy or in-person therapy? In-person. Wow. Awesome. So if, if I reach out to you for therapy, I'm in the bottom of the world, you're in the top of the world. What do we do? I, I adore being able to offer online therapy as well, but I like being in a room that's separate from my life at home. Okay. So in a way it's okay. in person for me, no matter what, if I go to my office. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for allowing us to go inside your mind. I am excited. I mean, you know, when I looked up the work you've done on the examined life, I thought to myself, I wonder when you started examining your own life. Mm. <laughs> Good question. I think it's a work in progress and it's not something where I arrive at total self-awareness ever. But I I have been curious about my life for as long as I can remember without necessarily being able to make sense of anything. 
Okay. <laughs> I the as you've examined all of your patients and you've thought through you know the mystery of the human spirit and the human mind. Mm. Do we ever really know what we want? I think that we have a range of desires and we can be very clear about certain certain longings, but it's always a matter of priority. So I think when people expect to resolve ambivalence to kind of want just one thing and nothing else, it it's trying to simplify something that's inevitably complex. And when we can embrace the paradoxical side of desire, then there's a range of different possibilities and you you know part of what you want but you don't necessarily understand all of it. And I think, I think accepting the mystery is really important. Yeah. Accepting the mystery. I like that. I I know we do a lot of selling to ourselves. Mm. We develop when we don't know what we want, we try to rationalize. We post rationalize afterwards and go, maybe I want this. Maybe I did, but Mm. we, we need to feel confident. Right. Mm. And, in that selling process where we're selling ourselves on wanting one thing or another, what are some of the things you see as a pattern? So let me be more specific. In relationships, when someone looks around and go, I've been in this situation for a year mm. and we go, okay, well, they're good for this. They're good for that. What are you seeing as some of the patterns in terms of how people convince themselves of what they want? I think we do a lot of shoulds. So if the desire is coming from, I should want this, or he should be doing this, that is a cue to social pressures. And it doesn't mean that we can just do away with all of the shoulds, but, but shoulds are about responsibilities and external demands. And what is it for? So if you, if you want something, if you want to go on holiday because you think you should and you think that that's the way you will enjoy yourself and help yourself from burning out at your job, for instance, a, a kind of easy one. People always assume that holiday is a great thing and something to look forward to and you'll have so much fun, blah, blah, blah. Where Where is that coming from? Where is the desire to go to that place coming from? Is it from some kind of simplistic picture, some fantasy, some deep-seated sense that you can be fixed by going to a place for a few days? What is it about? So I think yeah. investigating and being curious about our underlying beliefs can be really helpful. Your book is laid out. Wonderfully. I mean, you've gotten a lot of high praise for the book. I want to know how you came up with the number 12. You know, uh, a therapist and her clients explore our 12 deepest desires. Do you think there are only 12 in terms of our deepest? Uh, you know, I, were you tempted? Were you tempted to put 13, 14? <laughs> of course, especially I, I like 13. It's, it's a better number than 12, but I think there is something about constriction that's really helpful as a framework for having a discussion. So 
you could go on from 12. There are other desires, certainly. But for the purposes of conversation, I think having a kind of contained frame allowed for enough illuminating discussion. And otherwise, it could have become the kind of narcissism of small differences for making an argument for why this desire is actually different from this desire. And uh, therefore, I mean, I, I think it's really just a beginning exploration of sure. the whole topic, but yeah. it's never, it's never complete. Out of the 12 deepest desires, which ones would you say most people are not aware that they have? I really like that question because there's often a kind of response to the different desires of what resonates. And I think, I think we get embarrassed about wanting power. And I think it's also universal. I mean, I, I will make that argument. I, I think we're not, we're not aware. I'm, can I say a few or am I supposed to just stick with one? <laughs> no, say a few. Yeah, please. I'm, it depends on personality and context and culture, of course, but we're not supposed to indulge our creative longings after a certain age in a lot of cultures, unfortunately. And oh, wow. I think it's sometimes really helpful to give give a person permission to want to play more, to want to make something, even if it's without skill or expertise. In fact, especially if it's without skill and expertise for cultivating a kind of beginner's mindset again. But it's hard to say out loud. If you go to therapy and you are frustrated at your job and you feel burdened by various conflicts in your life and tensions and pressures and then you want to be creative that it sounds like it's somehow not right for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been gobsmacked, almost fell out of your chair at what you discovered as someone's deep desire? I find it fascinating and surprising the way people can kind of meander and start with one narrative and end up somewhere totally different. So (laughs) an example would be the wish for the wish for attention. Okay. Which, which can be so covert and can disguise itself and play out in all sorts of ways. Wow. And, you know, as you were writing this book, what were you learning about your own desires? That I certainly have all of them at different moments. And and especially the unsightly difficult ones. Something like attention is, is so much easier to deal with for children and not just for children, grownups tend to allow desires more with children up to a point. It changes when language develops, but there's a kind of 
entitlement for a child to want attention. And I think without realizing it, I, I expected myself to have outgrown certain things and my own attention longings and wish for recognition were both shameful and also quite ordinary. Do you think you wrote this book because you wanted to satisfy something deep inside of you? Certainly. And I wrote this book because I'm interested in people and there's so much fresh material and opportunity and possibility in going to people's deepest, darkest desires. And there's something consoling about the darkness as well that actually handle the kind of distasteful emotions that don't paint a pretty picture of us. Yeah. One of my mentors has always told me to be careful with my words. And I, as I listen to you, I can hear that you're also very careful. And I can imagine maybe this is a skill you developed over the years because you could say something to a client and radically alter their life, right? Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of being careful and taking risks because if I hold back and I I avoid saying the difficult thing to a client, it's not so helpful. And it's usually when I say the thing, say the thing. I mean, just for the client, for the therapist, like going there, going to the most awkward place mm. that is most unbearable that you're wanting to hide from. That's really the heart of it. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend of mine who, she says that her partner, ooh, wow, we had a really deep conversation the other day. She says her partner, once they got married, start, has started to shut down on her mm-hmm. and become really cold and she can't access anything. And she really struggles to get information out of him. Mm-hmm. I've also experienced this in my own personal life. What are some of the ways to get people to kind of open up and speak about some of their mystery, some of their own complexity. Cause I do feel at times when a person shuts down, it's not always personal. They're not always, it's not always about you. It's about what's happening inside of them. How do we get people to open up a little bit more? Oh, I like that. You're looking for a trick. I, I think that we cannot demand that people open up and it is an immense frustration for those of us who are emotional nymphomaniacs. <laughs> I I personally really prefer it when it's possible to go into someone's inner world and it feels almost insulting and offensive when I'm shut out, especially if it's with a loved one, but, but it's also something that is there for a reason and resistance is a very self-protective mechanism. And there are lots of survival aspects to it that I think we can be quite impatient about, like just wanting someone to go there and open up and trying to pry someone open. I think actually being curious about the resistance is a helpful starting point. Wow. Like, I almost feel like we can stop this interview now. 
except we need to talk about the book. I mean, that is so, so profound. And for all of you listening, even me, that was so helpful. I want to just kind of go through, you know, a number of chapters and uh, I want to see how fast we can do this. Okay. Okay. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can just kind of move through this as a, at a, at a bit of a pace. Um, So guys, if you're listening, please keep up the past. Why do we avoid it? Because we think that we can change and be in charge of what happens next. And often we're overwhelmed and scared. Hide and seek. Unpack that a little bit. I have found in my work that we play emotional versions of hide and seek throughout our lives. And if you think about the game with children, it's something that children play literally and they enjoy hiding And there's also joy in being found. A child who isn't found is profoundly ignored and rejected feeling and insignificant. And there's a sense of not being thought about. And I think for adults, we, we hide our desires and we hope that someone will kind of help us get there. So you might hide your wish to get a promotion or get paid more and you hope that you'll be asked. You hope that life will surprise you. You hope that people will sit you down and can call you out. It doesn't happen that way. And I think my book is about understanding what we're hiding and finding ourselves in that sense, rather than waiting to be found. I mean, I think, you know, just kind of going back to the idea that that resistance is there for a reason and that people hide for a reason. People Mm -hmm. go quiet for a reason. Isn't that slightly paradoxical and maybe almost like a dichotomy between the idea that we want to, your book is titled, tell me what you want. Mm. (laughs) Yes. It starts with the story that you're telling yourself or that you want to tell the therapist, but that story then takes new directions and shapes and there are adjustments and discoveries. And I think, I think that when we have a kind of fossilized narrative, like a story that we tell over and over and over again, it's a form of resistance, even if it's seemingly open, if it's that kind of same story that's just sealed from revision allow yourself to see it in a slightly different way or tell it in a slightly different way. So surprised by your own discoveries can be a big part of it. This hiding sequence is huge. And I can, I can think now about relationships that are people really close to me and how, when I find them, there's this extraordinary joy. I can see it and they would never admit it. They would never admit that that's what they were doing. And if you're on the other side and you can see your partner, someone close to you doing this, do you call it out or you just? I mean, I, I like awareness, but I also piss off my relatives. You can be sure. But I think that we all hide. And if I admit that I'm hiding also, it kind of levels the game. So, I mean, I hide as a therapist, even as I reveal something, I, I, hide through other people's stories. I hide by whatever disclosure I select. But I also think that clients come to therapy hoping to be 
themselves and then they select which topics to explore. They omit major, major issues. So I, I've had clients not tell me about cocaine problems and relationships they're having with married people and secrets that I certainly wouldn't judge, but they are judging themselves and wanting to kind of not deal with, not face in some way. So even when you're radically honest about one thing, that can actually still be a smokescreen for concealing something else. Insider and outsider. Yes, I think that we're always negotiating what it means to belong and connect and be part of things. But we also have another part of us, which is dislocated, alienated, lonely, strange. And that part needs to be recognized with compassion. And I think that the pressure to fit in, the pressure to kind of cooperate and conform can actually be really isolating internally because I, it just falls short. It it doesn't kind of hold space for the part of self that's beyond reach, that's enigmatic. Yeah. How much do you think guilt holds us back in our careers, in our relationships, just the inability to look in the mirror and admit our own you know, desires for attention, all of our issues? I think it, it can be guilt, shame, fear, embarrassment. So sometimes the big guilt is about secret ego fantasies. So if you secretly think that actually you'd be great at your boss's job, but you don't dare let yourself show any of that longing, even to yourself, you try to kind of wow. play it down and you're cool and you're a nice guy and you can talk yourself out of admitting something that would just sound too much that might make other people wins. Mm. So I think that being able to admit these things privately, safely, it doesn't mean that you're going to then steal your boss's job, although maybe you will. But that kind of emotional candor and intimacy it can be liberating. When you start thinking about, there's a lot of awareness about biases. As a, as a person who studies neuroscience in the brain, you know most biases are actually good. There's a bias for brushing your teeth. <laughs> there's, mm. there, there's some extraordinary biases that help us operate efficiently. When we start thinking about as it applies to the workplace and some of the biases we have for gender, mm. um, you know, sexuality, uh, age, et cetera. When you confront your own biases and you realize that you do have a bias that's slightly destructive, how would you recommend someone going about dealing with potential issues you have with yourself, knowing you can't necessarily overcome these overnight? I think that awareness does go a long way and making a point of thinking and rethinking and paying attention to the bias. And I, I find it amazing and hopeful how we actually can improve in those ways, because yeah. I, mean, I look at my own like historical misogyny and I'm so much better about <laughs> 
about that issue than I used to be. I oh, wonderful! really worked through a lot of it. And I mean, that's probably a safe bias to admit to. Yeah. You know, as we wrap up, I want to know, you know, when you shared the first couple drafts with people in your life that care about you, I'm sure you shared with a couple of people before publishing. What were people surprised at? Like, what did people find most interesting? What, did, what were they surprised by? Because um, I want to tease people to go get this book. And, oh, so you, you only want to know? Pre-order. Only want to know about the positive forces in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you some of the. I'm, I'm open to whatever you want to share. <laughs> so I'm. I will. I want to go to the dark one. I. Okay. I told someone that I was writing this book and this person became deranged with jealousy and control. And I had completely underestimated how threatening he would find this. And when I look at it now, it was incredibly naive of me because I expected and hoped for recognition at, appreciation, respect. And instead, I got a kind of almost sibling rivalry of just like wanting to have complete power. And yeah, it, it was very, very surprising to me. So and what I have you learned about that person since? Is it were you being where you was your success and your progress in your career some sort of threat to them or why why do you think they responded that way well what i realized was i wanted to write the book and i'd also gone about it somewhat ambivalently because i didn't mm. know if i could do it i was embarrassed by the ego aspects i who was i i you know i probably did the false modesty thing i've been living in england for a long time and it was almost a secret to me that I wanted to write the book until I was writing it. And this person felt somehow kind of left out that I hadn't shared my Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So I remembering that, that we're all hiding. And I was hiding. I mean, I was hiding. He wasn't completely mistaken that I'd hidden that. But for, for many reasons... When we when we confront what we're hiding, it's definitely an advantage. Now you guys see exactly why I would not let this interview go, and I wanted to to have this conversation. This book, I feel, is going to radically change your life. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show, and I really, really wish you the best as you continue to come out and share this work with the world. Thank you so much.